All that remained to him was in that urn sitting in front of me. There's one thing that I knew at that point, and that was that I didn't want to be a victim because the world doesn't need any more victims. We got plenty of them already. The world needs people who take something bad and they make something good come from it. After losing his 18-year-old son to alcohol poisoning, Barry Adkins walked from Arizona to Montana, authored a book, and shared his experience with thousands of people to raise awareness of the dangers of binge drinking. He's our guest on this episode of Win This Year. Drugs and alcohol. Bullying. Unhealthy relationships. Depression. Internet safety. Substance use. Body image. Self-injury. Suicide. Anxiety. Social media. Kids. Pre-teens. Parenting. Middle school. High school. Adolescents. Teens. Coping skills. Self-care. Relationships. Strategies. Life skills. Prevention. Solutions. Health. Hope. Leadership. Insight. Information. Inspiration. You're listening to Win This Year. The official podcast of Not My Kid, a prevention nonprofit focused on inspiring positive life choices by helping kids, parents, families, and those who work with youth. Informative, interesting, inspiring. Win this year. Welcome to Win This Year. I'm Shane Watson, Public Information Officer and Prevention Specialist for Not My Kid. Today, we have a very powerful episode with father, author, and professional speaker, Barry Adkins. But first, we'd like to thank our sponsor, First Check. Win This Year is brought to you by First Check. First Check home drug tests help you protect loved ones from the risks of drug abuse. First Check is the number one pharmacist-recommended brand. It detects up to 14 illicit and prescription drugs and provides over 99% accurate, easy-to-read results in just five minutes, all in the privacy of your home. Go to firstcheckfamily.com and use code WINTHISYEAR to save on your order. Barry Adkins lost his 18-year-old son Kevin to alcohol poisoning on the day that Kevin moved out on his own. Since Kevin's death, Barry has made it his mission to educate others about the dangers of alcohol abuse. After the loss of his son, Barry walked 1,400 miles from Arizona to Montana with Kevin's ashes in his backpack. Barry has shared his story with well over 150,000 students and parents. He's also the author of the book, Kevin's Last Walk, A Father's Final Journey with His Son. Barry, thank you so much for being here on Win This Year. My pleasure, Shane. When we read statistics about the costs of alcohol abuse, and I don't mean financial costs, I mean human costs, those numbers are staggering. But when people look at them, they're numbers. They're cold, nameless, faceless numbers. And it's so important that when we are looking at the cost of alcohol abuse that we realize there is a human being on the other end of every one of those numbers. Someone's spouse, someone's parent, friend, or in your case, your son, Kevin. What was Kevin like as a person? Well, Kevin had a really good heart. You know, he he was the kind of kid that would help anybody. Uh, when he was in third grade, he befriended a boy by the name of David that was in a wheelchair. And there's really nothing wrong with him, David, except his legs didn't work. But because his legs didn't work, it was hard for him to make friends. And Kevin is the guy who made sure that David would get out the playground at recess, got him back into, he made sure he got back into class, got him to the bus. Occasionally, David's mom would drop him off at our house. He would, uh, leave the wheelchair at the front door, believe it or not, and Kevin would just drag him around the house. That's really cool. That's amazing. 
I, um, growing up, I had a quadriplegic cousin who had cerebral palsy, and eventually he started attending school with myself and his twin sister. And I remember not many kids in his class interacted with him at all. And to this day, I can tell you the names of the ones who did. And not only did it mean a lot to him, it meant a lot to me. That tells you a lot about a person. It does. As he was growing up, as Kevin was growing up, and you saw the person coming out and the personality and the traits and the strengths and the talents, what did you picture for him down the road? What did you see his life being like? Uh, Just a guy that would help anybody, really. I mean, uh, he was more, he wasn't a good student. In fact, he was a lousy student. But uh, I saw him probably working in a trade industry, but just being one of those guys that would just help anybody. I mean, he used to come home and tell us stories that scared me to death because he's the guy that stops on the freeway and helps somebody change a tire or gives them a ride. Whatever they needed, he would do it. Prior to what happened when he moved out, was there anything that you saw in him that gave you pause or gave you concern or, or maybe made you worry about him at all? Other than the helping people on the side of the freeway type of yeah. thing. He, um, there were some times where I suspected he might have been drinking. Uh, but, you know, it was one of those things where I'm like, oh, maybe, maybe not. You know, and he knew the problems with alcohol because his grandfather was an alcoholic. Right. So um, in hindsight, there were more clues than I knew. Uh, but he really was never in any trouble or anything. I mean, his high school principal didn't even know who he was. So uh, there was really not any problems. And I ask that and I highlight that because that's something we've emphasized numerous times on this podcast already leading up to this episode, where a lot of times there's not going to be this big neon glowing sign where those outward indicators are there. And it's so important for the parents that do listen, the grandparents, the guardians, to recognize that there's not always going to be some really overt thing to look for there. And we've met families where this is happening to, as with Kevin, loving, altruistic, caring people. Do you remember when he was moving out, the day he was moving out, when this happened, the last conversation you had with him, the last time you saw him, what do you recall from that? Oh, I remember that day in great detail. He, uh, he had decided to move out. Uh, he had his friend Craig come over and help him move out. Of course, they throw a bed, a TV, and a dresser in the back of his truck. That was, that was his idea of moving out. And he went back into his bedroom, and in his bedroom, his clothing system was pile of clean wrinkled clothes on the floor, pile of dirty clothes on the floor. And he grabbed a pair of the jeans and put them in the dryer to de-wrinkle, and he came in and told me something I've never forgotten. He said he wasn't going to take his toothbrush with him, that he'd come back tomorrow and get it. And then I, he put on his jeans. I walked out front with him like I normally do, gave him a hug, told him that I loved him and to be careful, and watched him drive away. It was the last time I saw him alive. What happened that night? That night, uh, he was moving into a house with a couple other guys. Uh, they decided to throw a little housewarming party for him. He... Uh, Started drinking, they started with beer, moved on to shots. He did six or seven shots of either Jack Daniels or Jägermeister. I've heard different stories on that, but uh, he passed out a short time later. They laid him in his bed on his side in case he vomited. Um, The party was still going on. They actually went in and shaved his head and his legs while he was passed out. Um, But his buddy Craig was worried about him, and around 4 a.m. the call started coming in to 911. First calls were difficulty breathing. Next calls were not breathing. Um, He was pronounced dead at the hospital while I slept peacefully in my bed. 
when and how did you find out that something had happened? So the next morning was Sunday morning, and my wife and I are sitting around doing what we normally do on Sunday morning, drinking coffee, talking about what we're going to do that day. About 8.30 in the morning, the doorbell rings. And we're both surprised because we weren't expecting company. And I open the door, and I see two police officers and somebody in plain clothes at the front door. It should have been a big red flag, but I'm that guy. I'm that guy. It didn't even occur to me that something bad had happened. I actually joked with them as they came in, thinking this had to have something to do with a dog or a parked car. As the officers came in, one of the officers and the person in plain clothes stayed at the front door. The other officer walked in and told us there had been an accident and your son is dead. We asked who, because we have a number of children. They said it was Kevin, and they handed us his driver's license. There's something pretty final about it when a police officer hands you your child's driver's license, because until that moment... You're holding out hope that this is all just a big mistake. You've got the wrong kid. You, you need to be the other side of town. You need to be next door or at least three streets down, something. But when they hand you your child's driver's license, you know he's gone and he's never coming back. What was your reaction upon, upon finding out? Well, um, obviously it's, it's complete shock, right, because... It's just something you don't, uh, personally, it's something I never really contemplated, the possibility of losing a kid. Um, any parent will tell you they would much rather they go before their kid does. And uh, I can only describe it as dark days. You know, you're, the next morning you wake up and you're wondering, where is he? Is he okay? Do I need to get him anything? After some time elapsed, obviously you made a conscious decision to do something with what you had gone through, to, to do something with this experience. When parents go through what you went through, or when parents go through what Paula Jordan went through, the per first person I spoke to on the first episode of the podcast, when something like that happens to a parent, and a parent chooses to not talk about it, I can understand that. I can respect that. I can empathize with that. But I've also met parents like you, like Paula Jordan, who have gone through very difficult circumstances and have decided, not only am I going to talk about it, I'm going to tell everyone that I possibly can. When and how did you make that decision? When, when did you choose to do that? So uh, I decided to do that. And that's interesting you asked that question because about a week later, I got the call to come and pick up his ashes. We decided to have him cremated. And... I went down to the funeral home, you know, they, you walk in there, they've got nice pictures on the wall, they're playing music in the background. They took me into an office, sat me down in a very comfortable chair, big desk in front of me, and a funeral director walks in and sets an urn down in front of me. An urn that holds all that remains of the kid that I burped, changed his diaper, coaches baseball, soccer, football, basketball, taught him to shoot a gun, swing a golf club. All that remained to him was in that urn sitting in front of me. There's one thing that I knew at that point, and that was that I didn't want to be a victim. 
because the world doesn't need any more victims. We got plenty of them already. The world needs people who take something bad and they make something good come from it. And I thought about what I would hope somebody else would do if it happened to their kid. And for me, the answer was clear. It was to get out and tell the story. Not to raise money, because that's another dirty little secret. There is no money in the world that'll fix the hurt. The only thing that helps is to try to make something good come from such a senseless tragedy. When and how did the idea for the walk come about? Did it happen at that point? Did it happen later? How did that come about? <laughs> well, that's almost a story in itself. We could probably do an hour on that. Um, I'd love to hear it. The, um, the idea for the walk came sometime later because we wrestled with what to do with his ashes. And uh, I grew up in Montana, and Kevin had been up there on vacation a number of times and always talked about wanting to move to Montana someday and buy a ranch. So we decided to take his ashes to Montana. The idea to walk actually came from the movie Lonesome Dove. Um, that was Kevin's favorite movie. It's the movie with Tommy Lee Jones and Robert Duvall. You know that movie? I do. Yeah. So you know how that ends, and that's basically where the idea to walk to Montana came from. Um, in the movie, he did it on horseback. I knew I'd never make it if I did it on horseback, so we decided to walk. What was the response to the walk as people started to find out, as you made your way there and you were getting you know, closer and closer? As word got out, what was the response like? Well, it was kind of interesting because even before the walk, I had a lot of people try to talk me out of it. Because, you know, they didn't want to see me fail, right? And there's people saying, well, why don't you go out and just walk a couple days and then come back and do this and do that? And uh, a lot of well-meaning people tried to talk me out of doing it. But, you know, you realize when something like that happens how important certain things are. And I was afraid that if somebody talked me out of it, I would regret it the rest of my life. And so... I decided that I was going to walk to Montana. Uh, obviously, not my kid played a major role in that. Um, they sponsored the walk. They scheduled almost all of the speaking engagements I had along the way. I probably spoke, I don't know, 40 or 50 times. Uh, I think the number of people was over 10,000, something like that. But you meet wonderful people along the way. You realize that we're really not as jaded as some people think we are. Uh, every day, people would stop and ask me what I was doing. And if it was raining, I'd have people stop and ask me if I needed a ride. What are you doing out here? Do you need anything? Uh, I had ladies bring me brownies and milk. I had an old guy in a 72 Datsun one time stop and talk to me. And he talked to me for a while. And when he was done, he handed me five bucks and said, make sure you get something to eat when you get to town. So not only the people that heard you speak, but the people you connected with along the way in situations like that. And I love what you said that, you know, when we get together and we sit down and we connect in person, we find out that we're not as jaded as we seem to be on the surface or what we see in the media. We had a conversation um, with Chrissy St. Massey and Bree Pear on the last episode from an organization called Only Human. And they like having events where they get people together and to sit down together and have a meal and things like that. And it's 
it's hard to dislike somebody. It's hard to hate somebody when you sit down and you have a meal with them and 5, 10, 15 minutes later you find out you have a lot more in common than you realized. I know the walk distance-wise was about 1,400 miles from Arizona to Montana. How, was, how long was the walk in terms of a number of days? So we had things scheduled out really tight. Uh, it was every day was scheduled for four months. Uh, we started uh, end of February and ended up first uh, of July in Montana. So uh, it took about four months. Um, we had some days in there that were padded because I was always afraid, you know, what if I tweak my ankle or I get sick? But it turned out I never had a single sick day, didn't take a single day off because wow. of a problem in four months. So um, it worked out incredibly well. There was days when I didn't feel like walking. There was days when I was asking myself, exactly what have you got yourself into here? But um, somehow every morning I'd get up and get after it. Is there a particular moment? It sounds like there's a lot of highlights along the way. Is there a particular moment that stands out to you the most as the most memorable or most special moment from the walk to you? Oh, oh. Well, there's a couple of them that um, stand out from people who stop to talk to me. Um, there was a guy outside of Flagstaff you know, a lot of times when cars go by, you'll see them hit their brake lights, but then they, you know, kind of keep going. There's a guy, I see the brake lights, I think, okay, he's stopping. And he comes up to me and he says, are you the guy that spoke at Flagstaff High School a couple days ago? I said, I am. And he said, I just want to thank you because my son, for the first time, came home and told me something about school. And it opened the door to that conversation and that was it was easier to walk the rest of the day definitely after that I also had a guy in Montana that got out of his car came back didn't say anything just gave me a hug and started crying because he's just so scared about what could happen with his kids so some neat things like that along the when the walk was over, did you know what you wanted to do to continue to get the story out there? Obviously, you had done some speaking engagements along the way. Did you know at that point that you wanted to continue? Was it a given that you were going to? And how did you progress from there with continuing to share Kevin's story? I knew that wasn't going to be the end of it. Um, I continued to share Kevin's story and um, basically continue to hone the message because I, I call them the way I see them. In the beginning, I'm not sure my message was that great and that clear. Uh, but through the years, uh, when you have your bride sitting there listening to every one of your presentations, um, I beat it to death. I freely admit that I beat it to death. I changed things dramatically. Uh, I now, at the beginning, tell people, you know, I'm not here to tell you how you live your life. I'm here to tell you a story. And when you listen to that story, I want you to think about what you want your story to be. And so, as I mentioned, the story has changed uh, through the years to make it clear. I love how you start out. I'm not here to tell you how to live your life. I've noticed, you know, and I've gone out and spoken to students for a while. I'm at over 500 speaking engagements now, nowhere near where you've reached yet. I'm hoping to be there someday. <laughs> And there is a, uh, it's, there's a power 
in the moment that you tell them, I'm not here to tell you what to do. I want to share the experience and the knowledge that I have, and it's up to you to choose what to do with it. When you see the change, because you know kids are used to people telling them all day long what to do, whether it's parents, whether it's teachers, coaches, et cetera, you can see a visible change, not only in facial expressions, but body language when you're out of middle school or high school and you say that. They're automatically much more receptive, and it sets such more of a, a collaborative tone. It's not a lecture at that point. As you have met kids and parents, you know, and beyond the, the experience that you already had with what you went through with Kevin's story, but all the connections that you've made over time, what would you like to tell parents listening to this that you would like them to take away from your experience or what's the, what's the biggest piece of advice that you could possibly give to those listening? Actually, there's three things, and it's the same three things that I share every time uh, I tell Kevin's story. And the first one is about decision-making. The two most important decisions that you or your children are ever going to make are about drugs and alcohol. It isn't even close. I, I don't care where you're going to school. But you need to educate yourselves and your children about the dangers of drug and alcohol abuse as if their lives depend upon it because it does and the second thing is about adversity here's the thing bad stuff's going to happen to us right the way you respond to adversity is going to define your life and notice i don't say it might define your life it will um, i've heard i was talking to one of the other speakers and he was a recovering addict and I asked him one time, I said, so what started you down this process? Of all things, it was his girlfriend breaking up with him that started him down that path. The way you respond to adversity, it's going to define your life. And the third thing is about forgiveness. You know, it was easy for me to forgive the guys at the party because this was Kevin's choice, not mine. And it was easy for me to forgive my son. But... There's one person that was tough to forgive, and that was me. And it took 1,400 miles and five pairs of shoes, but I have found a way to forgive myself. I, I heard a, par a, a pastor describe it once best. He said, uh, anger and vengeance lead to one thing, destruction. Forgiveness leads to healing. And sometimes the most important person to forgive is yourself. And sometimes that's the hardest person to forgive, as you saw yourself, as you found out yourself. The three things that you talked about, those resonate with me so much personally. Number one, you're absolutely right. The two most important things that they will talk to their kids about are drugs and alcohol. School is important. Life is important. Relationships are important. Absolutely. But those are a matter of life and death. And I love the way you put it because you – the way you – Verse that you, the way you say that makes it clear that we can't get in that not my kid mentality. Like you said, it doesn't matter where you go to school. We can't say, well, my son goes to a good school. He probably does, but that doesn't mean drugs and alcohol aren't going to be there. Number two, the way that you respond to adversity is going to determine your path and your legacy. There's three words that I feel like we as adults frequently tell kids, and it's follow your dreams. And that's great, and we absolutely should tell them that because if you're not living your passions, you're going to resent your life. There's three more important words that I think we should be telling kids, and that's learn to adapt. 
you're not going to get that job sometimes. That relationship is going to fail. Things are going to happen, and we have to find a way to find joy and peace and make a life for ourselves in spite of that. And then number three, forgiveness is one of the most powerful things I've ever seen, maybe the most powerful thing. The amount of grace that I was shown after the mistakes that I've made. Now, pain made me want to want to change, but what solidified and finalized that change was the grace that I was shown. After I show, after after what happened happened, people saying you did mess up, but you know what? We're going to love you regardless. And if we can find that to do for ourselves, that's an absolutely incredible thing. Yeah, I, uh, I at a men's Bible study, one of the things they said was that pain is fertile ground for radical change. And it's so true. Bad stuff's going to happen. Make something good come from it. If there's someone listening to this who has gone through a tragedy involving their child or grandchild or, or some other child in their life, what would you tell them? Is healing possible after something like that? And if so, what allowed you to begin to heal? I appreciate you asking me that question, Shane, because um, grief is something nobody wants to talk about, right? There's a couple things to understand. Again, the most you can hope for is to make something good come from it. But the other thing to understand, and, and this may offend some people, but here's the thing. When your child or grandchild dies, the old you dies with them. You cannot, no matter how hard you try, you're never going to feel the same way again. And coming to grips with that takes time, but understand that the new you is born, and the new you can be a better person if you'll let it. Again, it comes back to that adversity discussion. Um, you've got to find a way to make something good come from that tragedy and understand that you're never going to get back to that day. You're never going to feel the same again, but a new you can be born and it, and it can be better. Beyond that acceptance and beyond understanding that you were a new version of you and then finding how you wanted to channel that and go tell people and share that experience and make something positive out of that, what else, if anything, has allowed you to heal? My faith. Uh, I, we're not here to talk about faith, but I'm here to tell you my faith is everything. If people want to learn more about you or what you do or get your book or ask you questions, what's the best way for people to contact you? Uh, you can contact me on the website. It's kevinslastwalk.com. Uh, on Facebook, it's Kevin's Last Walk. And Twitter, it's Kevin's Last Walk. I would say Facebook. Uh, you can follow the page and message me from there. And we will include all those links in the show notes as well. So if you didn't catch that, that will be in the show notes. Is there anything else you'd like to add? Anything you'd like to include that maybe I've overlooked? You know, I, the thing about it is, is as the saying is, not my kid, right? Um, I'm that guy. I'm that guy who didn't think anything was wrong when two cops and a, police, and a person in plain clothes showed at my front door. I'm that guy who rather indignantly told a financial guy that my son didn't need life insurance because boys don't die. It happens, man. And I guarantee you, you do not want to go through this. It is not something I, I wish I didn't know you, Shane. 
honestly. Not through this way, no. <laughs> no. It would have been great to meet uh, some uh, other way. You, you do not want to become a member of this group. In your book and in some of the speaking engagements that you've done and, and some a video that I've seen that, that was done profiling you, there is an incredibly powerful piece that you refer to as a letter from heaven. Um, all of the story that you share and the wisdom and the experience and, and how, how candid you are about it is powerful. The letter from heaven stands out to me in particular. So if you wouldn't mind first explaining you know, what your thought process was in creating this and then reading that for us as we close the show. Well, the, in the grief process, uh, you do a lot of writing, at least I did. You write poetry, you write things down. Um, and at some point I wondered, you know, what, what would Kevin say to me if he could send me a letter right now, what would he say? And I, I kind of wrestled with that. I actually have a funny story to tell you about this, this particular letter. I wrote this, just jotted it down on a piece of paper, went to a speaking engagement, had it with me, and had never read it out loud, which is a behemoth mistake, right? I actually got to the end of the presentation, started reading it, and just started bawling. And... My bride is there, and I'm thinking, I'll look over to her, and there'll be some encouragement. Nope, there was just tears running down her face. So I'm thinking, I got through it somehow, but um, I'll go ahead and read it. Dear Dad, first I'd like to say how much I miss you and I love you. I'm sorry about what happened. You have no idea how sorry. We were just out having a good time. I didn't think anyone could get hurt. It seemed like so much fun and everybody was doing it. One minute we were drinking and having a good time, and the next minute I was dead. I want you to know how hard I tried to live, how much I wanted to go back to the beginning of that night and change it all. I never believed it could happen to me. I knew people who had problems with alcohol, but I wasn't one of them. I knew better. I saw people do it and get away with it, and I figured I could too. I had so much left to do, Dad. My life was just starting. I was looking forward to coming home and raiding the refrigerator in the pantry. I was looking forward to many more hunting trips, working on the old yellow truck together, getting married and giving you more grandchildren. I will never get to share Thanksgiving dinner or Christmas with you again. No more gifts, no more falling asleep after Thanksgiving dinner. Tell everyone you can about what happened to me. Tell them how dangerous alcohol abuse can be and how it only takes once for terrible things to happen. Tell all the kids that what can happen is not cool and that it can happen to them. Tell them about the pain it brings family and friends. Tell them so they don't have to find out the hard way, the way I did. Something very good will come from this, Dad. I just wish I was there to share it with you. I love you and miss you son Kevin Barry thank you so much for being here on Win this year my pleasure Shane thank you and as always on Win this year we want to give you three resources if you are struggling with thoughts of suicide or you are helping someone who is there is help there is hope there are resources available 
Number one is the Suicide Prevention Lifeline. You can reach them by calling 1-800-273-8255. That spells out 1-800-273-TALK. Teen Lifeline can be reached at 1-800-248-8336. That spells out 1-800-248-TEEN, T-E-E-N. And the Crisis Text Line can be reached by texting the word LISTEN to 741741. If you are going through a difficult experience, I want to encourage you. There is hope. Things can get better, but it is important to reach out and to ask for help. And for those of you who are noticing someone who is struggling, it is important that we reach out and we help them, that we start the conversation and we let them know we care and we will help. A special thanks once again to our guest, Barry Adkins. If you've enjoyed this episode, if you enjoy Win This Year, please be sure to subscribe, share, and spread the word. Win This Year can be found on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and nearly every other mainstream podcast outlet. If you have questions or concerns, would like to suggest a guest or a topic for a future episode, email us at winthisyear at notmykid.org. winthisyear at notmykid.org. As always, all links mentioned in this episode will be in the show notes, along with all the links for Not My Kid's social media. I'm Shane Watson, Public Information Officer and Prevention Specialist for Not My Kid. Thank you again for listening to Win This Year.